All right, find your seats. We'll get going here. Well, my parents uh, in their lifetime had the, the great fortune of doing a lot of traveling. And uh, in fact, they went to so many countries, I don't even remember all of them. And, uh, and so they would go, my dad would, would do consulting work in different countries about irrigation, and then they'd come home, and my mom would uh, take their leftover coins and put them in a little bag, and, and she collected them all together. And so uh, when, they, uh, when they died, I inherited a massive fortune of foreign coins. And, uh, and so, you know, it's just kind of fun to, to go through this and you know, I, I was just looking in here this week, and I just totally forgot they even went to Fiji. Um, here we got um, Thailand, uh, Yugoslavia. Wait, does that still exist? Sorry, I don't know. Argentina, Portugal, and you can go through the whole bag and see all the places they, they visited. And, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting. There's a bit of nostalgia there because it's where my parents traveled and and there's a bit of sense of history because some of these countries <laughs> don't exist anymore or, or they don't print this money or these kinds of coins anymore. And, and, and you know, coin collecting, it can make a nice hobby. Uh, you can see how well I'm doing with coin collecting. Uh, it's a really neat display here. Um, I had to dig this out of my basement. Sorry, Mom. But uh, that's where <laughs> that, that's kept. So, you know, it's kind of fun. But financially, in terms of wealth... Let's be honest, it's not worth very much. It's, it's really not. You know, you can dig through there and start looking on eBay, but it's, it's not worth much financially. Jesus taught a lot about money and wealth. He, uh, he really had money as his second favorite subject. When he was going to teach and he looked at his list of items, his first subject was the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, and his second choice for a sermon was about money. Not because he wants your money. We know what he wants, right? You know he wants your heart, not your money. Also, I think, as our creator, he knows something about human beings. And that is, if he doesn't have your heart, money probably does. And so, he wants our heart. But he taught a lot about money. He tells us today to be wise about wealth, to use it with a view of eternity and our future with him. He tells a story to the disciples in Luke chapter 16, celebrate, new chapter, moving right along, chapter 16. He tells this very unique and interesting story. 16 verses 1 through 2, Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. Now, if you were a wealthy landowner and business person of Jesus' day, uh, you would probably have too much to handle on your own, and so you would hire a manager, or you'd be so wealthy, why would you want to be the manager? So you'd hire someone, and the position of manager was actually a prestigious and powerful job. You had control over a lot of things, and sometimes that owner's family would take you in, and you're kind of part of the family almost in the inner circle, and you saw all the inner workings, and, and you had a lot of power. 
Now, this manager is accused of being wasteful. But remember, this is a fictitious story. It's a parable. Jesus, well, he's making it up. It's an illustration, right? And he, he in his story, the, the manager is accused of being wasteful. And the, the owner says, you're, you're being terminated, right? And so get ready. Get ready to give an accounting of all of the things you've done because you're going to be out of here very, very soon. So, verse 3, the manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So, this manager has an employment crisis. He runs through the, the uh, job listings, you know, he gets paper and everything's like manual labor. He's like, uh, digging. And, and this is, as one commentator said, a, a typical white collar employment crisis. You're looking at all the jobs and it's like, oh, I don't want to do that. And I don't have skills for that. And what am I really good for? And you're starting to question who you are and all these kinds of things. And I don't want to beg. And what do I do? And then he comes up with an idea. And he prepares for his time of unemployment. It says, so he called in each of his master's debtors and he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. There we are. And then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. So remember, this is just a story Jesus is making up. And he gives us a couple examples of what it was like to bring the people in. And he, he brought them in and reduced their debt. And understand, this is a lot of money. Even the, the reduction he's taking. 900 gallons of oil. That was the equivalent, some have calculated, of three years' income for the average worker, right? That's, that's a lot of cash. Or the thousand bushels of wheat, that was eight years of income, right? So I don't know if you have an average wage. If, if you are, eight years of your income, now we're talking about like, you know, uh, a quarter, a third of your mortgage. We're talking about a lot of wealth. And this is the kind of debt he is erased in dealing this way with the owner's debtors. Some have also calculated that even though one was cut in half and one was cut by 20%, the actual cash value of those reductions may have been the same value, which might be helpful later as we try and interpret this. His goal, though, is really obvious, isn't it? He's trying to take people who are indebted to his owner and cook the books a little bit so that they are now indebted to him as well so that he will be taken care of in the future. And then we get to the punchline. Jesus ends the story in the most amazing way and in a way that I think troubles some of us. In fact, several people have told me this week, now this will be interesting because I always struggle with this parable. It's a little dicey, like what in the world is Jesus doing? It's like using a Hollywood R-rated movie and making a Bible study out of it because of all of its great spiritual values, you know? Here's Jesus with all of this, you know, intrigue and lying and deception and graft and, you know, I don't know, is the syndicate behind this and all this? And at the end of the story, Jesus says the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. 
And I think everyone's like, he did what? <laughs> At least that's what we're thinking. He did what? What's going on that he would commend him? And why would Jesus tell a story like this? Well, let's think about how we should hear the story. The first and, and obvious thing that most people, especially most modern commentators see, is that he was abusing the owner. He was defrauding the own, his boss of value that was owed to the, to the owner. These were real then and, and legitimate financial losses for the owner. And some point out that in doing so, he was kind of being consistent with the accusations that he was being wasteful. The problem I have is, what does it even mean then for the owner in that situation to commend him? It's mind-boggling and just beyond even thinking about. I don't think that's it. Fortunately, a couple other things might be going on that kind of help us understand the story. And something that probably all of Jesus' listeners would have understood is that the law forbid charging interest. You couldn't charge a, a countryman, another Israelite, interest on a loan. But everyone knew that the wealthy and the rich and the landowners and the large farmers tried to get around this. They tried to circumvent the law by trading in commodities. So, in other words, sure, you can have uh, 450 gallons of olive oil. Now, when you return that, make sure it's 900 gallons. Oh, no, no, that's not interest. That just, just make sure it's 900 gallons. So they traded in commodities, and they said it wasn't interest because interest had to do with coins, you know, with someone's picture on it or something. You know, it was a bag of this. I'm not, we're not trading in coins. That's not interest. And we've seen this before, haven't we, in the Gospel of Luke? People trying to get around the law, live on some technicality, some legality, and think that they're still obeying God. Now, if this was going, well, actually, this was the kind of thing that went on, and if the people understood that in a, in a story like this, now the commendation becomes something a little different. You, now you have an owner who's been doing this, trying to get around the law, and he's saying to his manager, wow, that was shrewd. You got me. You got me, right? What am I supposed to say? Am I supposed to, like, complain to some authority? Does one thief who steals something and then has someone else steal it from them call 911? I don't think so, right? Somebody's uh, driver's license number is engraved in the back of that Blu-ray player. You know, am I going to call and say, hey? <laughs> no, and the owner's saying, wow, well done. I mean, that, I got to admire how shrewd that was. Yeah, I lost a lot, but what am I going to say? Because I'm not supposed to even do what I was doing. Now, if this were the case, I think we could also see that that commendation is kind of a shared voice. It's the fictitious owner in Jesus' story. It might also be Jesus himself saying, good move. That, that was smart. That was wise. You have to admire someone who calls someone to account and, and exposes their legalism about how they, they say they're loving God, but they're not. They're getting around things. Part of the commendation in this case could have been from Jesus. Next week, we'll see that the Pharisees, in fact, scoff at this parable in the teaching that follows it and say, that's ridiculous. That's foolish. And they don't like what he said. They don't like this example. 
And they may, may very well have been some of those rich owners who are getting around the law. We've seen it before. There's another possibility, and that would be that the man is giving up his own commissions. In this case, the owner really isn't losing anything that was his. That whether the owner knew it or not, he was charging a commission, so he would give out, you know, 800 bushels of weed, and he would say, my commission is 200 bushels, and when you bring it back, you know, 800 goes to the owner, 200 goes to me, so I make my living, I charge commissions. In which case, the commendation here is the owner saying, that was really smart. You're not going to be here very long. In fact, you won't be here long enough to collect your commission. So by going to these people and erasing what they were going to have to pay you, but now they don't, that was brilliant because now they're really grateful to you. And when you don't have a job here any longer, which by the way, you are still fired, (laughs) you know, they might take you into their homes. They might make you manager at their business. Well done. That was very smart. Now, fortunately, either of these last two work with Jesus' point because the story really isn't about business advice or questionable ethics about having good ethics. It's not about copying his tactics or his methods. The, the, the story in the parable has one intent, and that is to learn from his effort, from the manager's effort and focus. Fortunately, Jesus gives us the point straight out. He says, the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Shrewd, while we hear that kind of with a negative connotation, it's really just the word wise. That was really smart. That was wise, a certain kind of wisdom you expressed there. Now, when you use that in a selfish way, I guess shrewd, you know, might deservedly have that negative connotation, but it doesn't necessarily have that. And here's Jesus' argument. He's using a very classic kind of approach to present material to his his, uh, listeners. Uh, An argument from the lesser to the greater. He's saying, if this lesser thing is true, then wouldn't it be even more true in the greater sense? This is what he's arguing. He's saying, if worldly people shrewdly use money and wealth to prepare for their temporal future, shouldn't the people of God, the people of light, who have access to far greater wisdom, use their money to prepare for their far more important future, their eternal future? See, we we tend to think of of money and eternity as oil and water, that they have nothing to do with each other. And some of that even is, is the Bible's own teaching. You know, you love this stuff, it'll lead to all kinds of evil, right? Not not foreign coins, but you know, wealth, right? And and we get this kind of fear of it. There's nothing in common between them. But that's why it's interesting, I think, for Jesus to come here and say, well, listen, what I really want you to do is to be wise. I want you to use it. Use it in ways that best prepare and correspond with eternity. So here's one of those ways we could do that. He goes on and teaches after the parable. Use money for people, not people for money, right? Uh, That's what the people of the world do. They'll use people to get money. Don't do that. Use money for people. Now, this isn't a new concept, but this is a really unique verse that he teaches at this time here in Luke 16, 9. Jesus says, I tell you, 
Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Well, that is fascinating, isn't it? It's almost something that you just wouldn't expect to hear come out of Jesus' mouth, right? And it depends on how you interpret it, but it kind of sounds a little like, hey, why don't you buy yourself some friends? <laughs> of course, now this is Jesus. You know him, right? That's not exactly what he means. Now the manager used worldly wealth to leverage it into security for his future physical life. Jesus says, use wealth, leverage it, be smart, turn it into things of greater value than the money itself had because you have a greater future. You need to do that. And using wealth for people translates it into something you can keep. Notice in the verse he says, when it's gone, <laughs> because it will be gone. I don't know if you notice this, but uh, my mom doesn't have her coin collection anymore, <laughs> right? She's in heaven. She left it behind for me. And uh, you know what? It's in my basement, and my kids are going to find it there. <laughs> my daughter was here at the first service. So I was like, you want it now or later? <laughs> I'm not taking it with me, right? We know we can't do that. But we can turn wealth, we can invest wealth into something of greater value. People is one of those things. See, we could take some, uh, I don't know, what do I got here? Portugal, let's go to Portugal. So I got a little money. It's probably precious little because they're kind of, yeah, anyway. But so I got some money, I'm in Portugal, and I, and I want to buy something. I think, well, I need a new remote control, a new clicker for the computer. This one's pretty old now. I don't even know how long I've had this. So anyway, uh, and I think, well, I'm going to do that. So here's what happens in an exchange with wealth. I use my money to buy this, and I don't have it anymore, right? It's gone. But I have this, and it lasts for a while until it doesn't, right? Or until... Well, as Jesus said, it's gone. Now what do I have left? Nothing. Now sometimes in life, God expects us to do some of that with some of our wealth, right? I, uh, I was noticing my shoes are wearing out a little bit, and someday here, I'm going to have to get some new ones. I'm going to have to take some and get some nice Portuguese shoes <laughs> with some of that, and I won't have that money anymore, and I'll have shoes, but God knows I need some, and I'm not wearing them to heaven, right? But I, I need to do some of that, but not all of it. Jesus says take some of it and turn it into things that are worth more than that wealth seemingly was worth. Wealth can be useful to the benefit of of your eternal future. Notice how he says eternal dwellings. Interesting phrase, isn't it? That's eternal tense. Now, usually in the New Testament, when we find someone using the word tent, it's like Paul who said, uh, I'm, I'm getting ready to put off this earthly tent. He meant his physical body. He wouldn't be around much longer, right? He was going into the presence of Christ to heaven. And he wouldn't need this, his physical tent anymore. Here Jesus is on the flip side and he's saying, your eternal tent. So it's your resurrection body, your resurrection life, your eternal life. And all the values of the kingdom of God are wrapped into this. And he says, when you invest in people, you'll be welcomed into that part of your life. You'll be welcomed. Who is it that welcomes you? None other than Jesus himself. 
He was a lot less cryptic about this in Matthew uh, chapter 25. I believe this is exactly what he's talking about. Matthew 25, uh, Jesus comes back. He divides people to the left and to the right. And then he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, the King will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my Father. Those of you who have received the grace of God and have embraced it, think of Ephesians chapter 1. All the blessings of being in Christ, to know God, to be, have redemption and forgiveness and new life, all of those gracious blessings are yours. Blessed by my Father, he says, you, people of faith, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Several interesting things about Jesus telling us about this time in the future. First of all, he lets us know that he's taking notes. He, he's taking notes. When you invest in the lives of other people, whether that's with some of your wealth or your time or your talents, your giftedness, your graciousness, your forgiveness, your attention, your, your, your friendship, your partnership, however you invest your life in other people, Jesus notices. He notices. He takes notes. And then the second thing is, and this is the, the mind-boggling thing I hadn't really thought about before this week. Now, think about the, the greatest, the biggest, most monumental events in human history, right? Both past and future. Yeah, I mean, just the highlights, right? You got creation. You've got the exodus. You have the cross, no doubt, pinnacle. You have Jesus' return, Right? The high point. So Jesus' return is a big moment. And he comes back and think of all the things he might have talked about. I know you've all got questions and some of those things were troubling. There were shootings and wars and famines and you're troubled by that. And you got questions for me or, or hey, let's talk about your future. I, you need to know how things are going to work now. And here's where the cafeteria is in heaven. And I want you to know this. And I just think of all the things he could talk about. But he comes back and he says, and I'm going to come back and I'm going to talk about how you invested in the lives of other people. Because <laughs> they've been taking notes. Isn't that amazing? That's what's on his mind. That's what's on his heart when he comes in glory. And you're and like, yeah, you all dropped your knees. You've been singing about that forever, Philippians. But what I want to talk about is how I notice you've been investing in other people's lives. I've been watching That's astounding. So use money for people. Invest in people's lives. It's wise. It earns you a welcome that Jesus has noticed into your eternal dwellings. Here's another way that we can uh, use money wisely, and that's use money to build character, to build your own character. I think at times when we look at life, we're just kind of thinking about priorities in life and and we've kind of got those more important things, and we've got the little things in life. Sometimes we can get lazy. We can be tempted to look at little things and then start treating them like, not that they're little things, but they're actually just nothing. They're just, they're so little, they're not even significant. 
They're unimportant things. It's only a little time. It's only a white lie. It's only this one time. It's only a little flirting. It's only a dollar. And, and you know what? They're so little, they're unimportant, and they won't impact the big thing. It's not a big thing, and this won't change the big things in life. Now, Jesus disagrees. He says your character is formed by little things. And even a little wealth, well-managed, creates good character. Back to Luke 16. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. See, we like to live the other way around, right? Whoever is dishonest with very little will be dishonest with much. We like to tell ourselves a little bit won't hurt. <laughs> Jesus is like, yeah, it does. It makes you who you are. And it corresponds to how you treat the big things. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? When we think about financial responsibility, we tend to think of the big things, right? A, a whole paycheck or a, years of, a year of income, the value of our house, maybe our car or a retirement fund or lack of one. You know, we think about big amounts, right? And that's what I need to be careful with. Ah, little amounts doesn't really make a difference. Track with me here if we think maybe not specifically about wealth, but, you know, more important things and less important things in life. So, let me see. A little pressure here because everyone else this weekend has agreed, but would you agree that uh, one of the more important things in my life would be loving my wife? You know, if we just made some priorities, loving my wife would be one of the more important things. Does that sound right? All right. I think it is. It, it's, you know, one of the most important things. On the other hand, um, one of the less important things in my life is loving my neighbor's two dogs. He's got two little white dogs that run around in his backyard. It's just uh, one of the lesser important things. Would, I, would it be wrong to say that loving them is equal to loving my wife? I think so. So it's less important. But if I get, keep going with that and I just get tired or lazy or angry or, or some other crazy motive and I say, you know what, they're so, un, they're just unimportant. And I go over there and start kicking around my neighbor's dogs. Think about what's happened, right? Several things. First of all, I'm hurting my neighbor who God calls me to love and to say, that's actually one of the more important things in life. Second of all, it changes who I am. Now I'm a, the kind of person who does that, right? And I might say it's so unimportant and, and doesn't matter and that I'll still take care of the big things, but you see, I've changed who I am and that will impact how I do the more important things. I could say that I can kick my neighbor's dogs around and do a good job loving my wife, but let me tell you something, I will be a different person and it will change how I approach the big things as well. It's what Jesus said. Character's built on the little things. And if you can't be trusted with a little, you won't be trustworthy with the big things either. Little things. My goal isn't to, to challenge you to take everything so seriously that you're bogged down like trying to love everything the same. Some things are less important, but it doesn't make them unimportant. 
And money and wealth is an opportunity to build character, and even a little bit does that. Proverbs 22 says, a good name, your character, right? Your reputation, it's more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. So we're talking about um, translation values and investments, right? And so I've got a dollar. Now, if I show you a dollar and I say, what can you buy for a dollar these days? Does your mind flood with lots of things? <laughs> Mine doesn't. I tend to think uh, on Friday I saw candy bars on sale. I bought a Butterfinger because I could get it for less than a dollar, right? And after that, I'm like, I don't know. What can I get for this? Usually I have to put lots of them together. It has to become this kind of little unimportant thing in life. I've got to put them together with lots of others. And then I'm, I'm thinking, all right, now I got something important, right? There's all, I don't even know what this is worth, but not much. Now that's important. But see, what Jesus is teaching us and what this proverb teaches is that money's a chance to be faithful, to be reliable, to be noble, even a small amount. And every opportunity brings us that chance to handle money, little or much, and only get something material out of that is a wasted opportunity. Now, sometimes we have to do that. So here, here it is. This is worth not much, right? I don't know what that is. This equals Butterfinger equals not good nutrition. You know, not all that stuff. Not much. This equals not much. But being faithful with a dollar, see, now I'm building my character. And the character I get out of handling this in a good way is greater than riches, so I've turned the value of a dollar into enormous wealth. Incredible wealth. Better than silver or gold. I didn't know I could get something that good out of a dollar. But you can. Get that out of $100. You can get it out of $100,000. You can get it out of a million dollars. And on it goes. So use money to build character. And even the unimportant things in life our opportunities to be faithful. And the last one today is to use money to love God. I guess if I had to just summarize the Bible's teaching in money really fast, one of the things I would say is that if you don't control your money, your money will probably start controlling you. If you don't use money in light of eternity to love God, you're probably going to waste too much of it. Jesus gives us a familiar teaching. We end up in these verses or the, the parallel in Matthew quite often. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. To love God is to embrace Jesus' values, including his values over how to use wealth, whether it's a little bit or a lot. Otherwise, your money controls you. You know, I think one of the most important things about the equation that Jesus gives us here and the choice that he gives us, it's not just an either or. He didn't say there's God and there's money. Pick one to love. He said they're in tandem. They're joined together. And when you pick one, you pick a relationship to the other. It, they always come together, right? If you love money, understand, if you are devoted to money, you are hating God. 
And you will end up probably in the place where so many people end up, and that is trying to use God to get money that you love more than God. That's a hatred of God. And you could go home, I'm just guessing I don't actually do this myself, but I, from what I hear, you could turn on the TV and you could find somebody to listen to that will tell you that you could use God to get more of this. And let me tell you something, it's not the gospel, it's not the word of God, it's loving money and it's hatred of God. You don't use God to get money. You love God. Now, that is the other choice, of course. When you love God, what you will do is you will start making decisions revolved around the values of his kingdom and of eternity that look strange to other people, such that people who do love money will look at your choices and they will say, that was foolish, as in, you hate money. You're too generous. That was way over the top generosity. That won't get you anywhere. You're not taking care of yourself. That was irresponsible. See, these are things that people who love money will say about the people of light who aren't always looking so shrewd to them. But we want to become shrewd and wise in the eyes of Jesus. Use money to love God. Again, thinking about priorities, and and you've heard this many times, you've thought it about yourself, and you've observed it in the world. As we think about the priorities and what the world says, the, the world says that God is a personal preference. And if you love God a little bit, good for you, you know, that probably helps you out a little bit, makes you happy, that's fine, but it's not that important and it's kind of optional. The world says that people are more important than that, a little bit more important than that, but if you want to know what matters most, Things matter most. Wealth matters most. Wealth creates happiness. It defines success. It should be the goal of your life. This is what the world says. And Jesus comes along and says, that's exactly backwards. Exactly backwards. Things matter so very little. The Lord, your Father, knows what you need. and He will provide it, but one day it will be gone. Things matter so little. People matter far more. Far, far more people matter so much. And loving God counts most of all. Money used in ways that reflect these realities, these priorities, they're good preparation for eternity. We should do likewise. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, uh, for this fun story. I, I, I don't know this, but I just keep imagining your son um, enjoying kind of unsettling people and telling this unique story about this manager and this owner. And, and uh, thank you for challenging us as well with his teaching. And yet this is a serious business. We understand both from reading your word and observing the world that uh, this stuff um, can infect us. This stuff can, can grab us. And we have to wrestle and we have to work hard. We want you to be at work in our lives. Help us to be in process to increasingly love you, Father, to love you, Lord Jesus, and, and to place whatever wealth you bring into our lives into your hands and to leverage it, to be wise, to be shrewd with it, with our eyes fully fixed on you and on the, and the wonderful, amazing future you have before us. Help us do this to your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.
Christ is my reward. And all of my devotion.